Well, good morning. You know you're beginning to show your age a little bit when you need um, hearing aids and seeing aids and speaking aids. We're going to look at a very familiar portion of Scripture um, in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, please. Many probably in here have uh, even memorized this particular section. It is on the goodness of God, the ministry of God to us. I'll begin reading with verse 3 and then make a few comments as we finish this portion, or after we finish reading it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every or all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, or in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee or the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And we're assured that the Lord will bless the reading of his word. Let's look to the Lord for just a moment. Our beloved Father, we, de we do indeed approach thee in that ever-lovely name of the Lord Jesus. These words that we've read, Father, speaks of thy wondrous grace towards us, Father the blessings, all of the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, may we indeed delight in that and possess these blessings that thou hast set in Christ for us. In his blessed name we pray. Amen. Paul takes 
I think, a little look at the book of Ephesians, and he's glorying in the things of the Lord. Glorying not only in the things of the Lord, but in the Lord himself. And he takes a deep breath. And then from the depth of his heart, he brings forth this magnificent song that we just read. Heard is a song. It's a song in three stanzas. Were you able to pick out the refrains of the three stanzas? Let me just give it to you here. In verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Drop on down again to verse 12, that we uh, who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And then on down into verse 14, the very end, the very part of that, uh, very last part of that verse, to the praise of his glory. Three stanzas broken or separated by this refrain, to the praise of his glory. And as Paul sings out this great song, he looks at God's wondrous dealing with man from eternity past to eternity future. He sets forth a, a panoramic view of all that God has purposed in his saints and how he's going to accomplish it. Each stanza proclaims the work of one of the members of the Godhead. The first stanza speaks of the Father, the work of the Father, and there are three elements that are given here for us. The second stanza is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then the last stanza is that which speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. And so Paul looks at this marvelous, marvelous work of the Lord. If we were to read through the book of epistles, I would suggest to you that you look for this little phrase, in Christ, in Christ in Christ. Over and over again, we read the blessings that are ours in Christ. In Christ. And Paul takes, in these three stanzas of this song, of this hymn, he takes the blessings that God, the triune God, has expressed and is working out towards us. These great mountaintops as if blessings, as if it were. Take a look at the panoramic view and you see nothing but blessings in Christ. But here Paul brings out in these three stanzas the mountaintops of blessings. God purpose in the past and the accomplishment of that purpose yet in the future. What a marvelous thing that is. God's ministry to man. It says that these blessings we have are really every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
the Old Testament saints, you might remember the, blessed, the, the manner in which uh, you could recognize blessing is by virtue of, uh, uh, of the material wealth that they had, of the size of their families, uh, the fruit of their, their labor, those sort of things, the material things, kind of spoke of the blessings of the people of God in the past. But for us, it's not material blessings that Paul is speaking of here. They're spiritual blessings. And those spiritual blessings are in the person of Christ alone. When God looks at humanity, he breaks it down into two parts. In Adam, in Christ. In Christ there are these innumerable blessings. Now let's take a look at these, these three stanzas. First, the work of God, the Father, in the past. His ministry to us in the past. Three things. In verse uh, 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You know, this has been a stumbling block to lots of folks, that God in eternity past, before this little brown, uh, this little blue ball came into existence, before humanity even entered the scene, there it says that the Father chose us now, of course, this speaks of election, doesn't it? And it frightens a lot of us, doesn't it? Because it's a minefield so often. And we make it a minefield by attempting to reconcile two things. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Both are taught in the Word of God. How do we reconcile them? Well, let's take a little look here. First of all, in regards to election, God's choosing, there are really three elements that are oftentimes confused regarding election. There's the foreknowledge of God, the election of God, and then the predestination of God. Now, in as simple terms as I can bring it, the foreknowledge of God is that he foreknew those in eternity past. It always speaks of persons, not circumstances, not other things. It speaks of persons. And in regard to sinful humanity, he's speaking of persons, and he's saying, I foreknow, I know these individuals. Election is simply making the choice of an individual for salvation. Now, I know that the Word of God uses the word election and choosing in many different ways. For instance, Israel was chosen or elect. The Lord Jesus Christ himself was chosen and elect. We're speaking strictly in the terms of human beings of those that are of the seed of Adam. 
And so God chooses some. He, he has the foreknowledge of all. He chooses some for a specific purpose, which is predestination, a, a specific outcome. Now, when we come to God's choosing, we do read that God chooses to save. But nowhere in the Word of God are we taught that he chooses men to be lost. Nowhere. The Word of God is clear that man has a responsibility before God to accept him. God's desire, his heart's desire, is that all should be saved. And so there is a responsibility on the part of man. No man or woman will go into a lost eternity because somehow God has not elected them. But if we have this issue of God's election, God's choosing for salvation, and man's responsibility to accept Christ, how do we reconcile that? Well, the problem comes that it's a mystery we can't reconcile. And so you have men that teach the view of the sovereignty of God. And what do they do with the verses that suggest the, or explicitly state the responsibility of man? Well, they make a little change, don't they? For God so loved the world of the elect. Is that what it says? Of course not. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, right, that's the picture here. And so, Harry Ironside, I think, has the best picture of all, the best illustration of this. He says, into the, the, the gate into eternal salvation has a sign o over it that says, whosoever will may come. Once you enter through that gate, you look back again at the gate at the t and look at the sign over it and says, foreordained, chosen before the foundation of the world. And so our message is a message of hope. The gospel is the presentation of salvation available, and that's what we're to present to the unsaved. Election is never presented to the unsaved. It is salvation and salvation alone. And there's no man, as I said, that will be able to stand before a holy God and say, I'm here because you didn't choose me. But there is that aspect. And I think that we'll have the ages of ages to try and deal with this situation, to try and deal with this thought, and we'll just marvel at the workings of the Lord through eternity. He chose, but I have a responsibility. And then, of course, that last word that is sometimes um, affiliated with uh, choosing or with election, 
He has predestined us to adoption. I'd like to split that into two things. The, he has, he foreknows, he chooses, and then he has a purpose for those that he chose. And what is that purpose? The purpose is to make them like Christ. Both in the image of Christ and as sons in Christ. Predestination. God the Father not only set in motion his choosing of individuals, but he chose them for a specific purpose. If we go on to 8th chapter of Roman, we are told what? that we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That comes about by a new birth. And so, we are brought into the family of God through a birth, a new birth, and there we are as children. And as children, heirs, and as children, we have some of the characteristics of the Father. And he says, I want those characteristics to be brought out just as they brought out in my Son. They will eventually be so. That's the predestination. They, that is the eternal outcome. But he says, I want that now. And so as children, we're brought into a relationship so that we could show forth the image of Christ. We're also, however, predestined to adoption. Now, it's lovely to have an adopted child, but that child doesn't have, or it isn't derived from the gene pool here the, that you have. It doesn't necessarily have the characteristics, the makeup, the, the, uh, the origins. And so, the position here of placement uh, into uh, the family of God, as if it were, is as sons through adoption. As children, it's the relationship. As sons, it's position. He brings us into a place and a position of privilege and authority. And both of these are true of every single believer. What a wonderful thought. The work of the Father. And you know he's going to... It, the adoption and the creation in the image has its outworking in time, but it will be fully accomplished in eternity. Because God purposed it. Well, if God purposed that, then we've got a problem now. Because what happened when Adam entered the scene? Sin entered. How is he now going to accomplish his purposes? Well, of course, now, because of sin, we find the work of the Son of God. What is his work? Okay, let's take a look. Remember that the the end of this uh, little um, verse, as if it were, the stanza ends in uh, 
verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by whom he made us accepted in the beloved. In him, the work of the Son now, in him we have redemption. We who are sons and daughters of, of Adam were of the seed of Adam under sin, in bondage to sin and Satan. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to the cross of Calvary and he gave himself upon that cross, his blood as the full payment of our redemption. Slaves to sin, purchased by the precious blood of the Lamb. Let me give you just a, perhaps a picture of the slave. We are slaves in the slave market, as if it were. This word redeem suggests three things. First of all, it suggests the fact that we are in the slave market, in chains, chained to, because of our sins. And as one that comes and pays the price for that slave. Now the problem is, one could pay a price for a slave and still have a slave and still have that individual remain a slave. He'd just be a different slave master who purchases or sells that individual. But that's not what the Lord does. He pays the full required price. Not only does he pay the full required price, but he will never bring us back into that bondage because he takes us out of the marketplace. We'll never be put on the block again. Isn't that wonderful? Once he buys us, as he has, with his precious blood, we'll never be put on the block again. Oh, but what a gracious God. There's a third element to it all. He not only pays the price and buys us out of the marketplace so that we never go back, but he sets us free. You see, a slave master can buy the slave for himself, but the Lord doesn't buy us for himself in that way. He buys us, but he wants us to voluntarily become slaves, slaves of love to him. I think uh, perhaps the last time I was here, David brought out a little portion in Scripture regarding the slave in the Old Testament that had his ear pierced with an awl, says, I love my master. I will not go free. Redemption. Redemption. If we go back into the slavery of sin, it's done voluntarily. We do it. The Lord doesn't do it. We are free to serve now sin or him. Free. And then from redemption, of course, we have the fruit of redemption, forgiveness. The issue of forgiveness. Here it's a little different picture. Here it's the willingness to pay the damages. Forgiveness. I'm willing to pay the damages. And of course, the, dam the damages that we 
paid were paid at the cross of Calvary. Redemption. Am I willing to pay the damages? If you go, for instance, to uh, Matthew chapter 6, you know that uh, the prayer that is presented for us, the, the model prayers it's spoken of, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And of course, at the very end of it, we're told that if we don't forgive, then uh, uh, the Father won't forgive us. And, and then you go down, what is it, to the 18th chapter of Matthew, that there's the picture of the master that, um, that has a slave who owns him money. And he forgives the slave. Now, we read through that. It says that he owned uh, 10,000 talents. And I think it's a uh, 1,000 denarii to a, to a talent. And uh, one day's wages was uh, a denarii. And someone figured it out, someone smarter than myself, figured it out to be about at today's market, $40 a day. Well, that's not today's market, is it? Well, let's not inflate it. That's bad enough. It would be $300 million. What was the Lord pointing out? That the Lord's giving the story. What, what's he pointing out there? He says, look, you, you can't pay it. Right? You just can't pay it. And so the master, what does the master do? He forgives. He says, um, I have calculated and I'm willing to pay the damages. I'm willing to pay the damages. Redemption is a one ongoing thing. Forgiveness of sins from a Lord's sense is a one-time uh, one thing. Redemption is a one-time thing. There is an ongoing element, however, to forgiveness, isn't there? Let's take it practically. Uh, those of you that are married, I'll just beat you up this morning. Uh, you, you have a little disagreement with your wife or your husband. Uh, there are some damages done. Maybe a serious matter. Uh, your spouse comes to you and says, Honey, I'm sorry, forgive me. Now you have to kind of sit there and calculate the cost. Because what you're doing is you're taking those damages that were made and placing them on yourself. I'm paying for the damages. I'm paying for the damages. And what happens oftentimes, we pay for the damages at the moment, but we kind of put it into a filing, mental filing cabinet way back there. And whenever that spouse comes even close to the same kind of action, what do we do? Well, wait a minute here. Look at this. Well, who's paying the damages? Am I paying the damages or am I putting them back on that person? On my spouse? They're paying the damages. I think it's uh, Clara Barton, you might remember her as the founder of uh, the Red Cross. She was extolling the virtues of uh, 
of another believer, and her associate tapped her on the shoulder, came and whispered in her ear and said, do you remember or have you forgotten the way that this woman treated you in the past? And Clara responded this way. She says, not only have I forgotten, but I remember distinctly forgetting it. Corey Tenboom puts it in another way. She says, forgiveness is what God does with us and we ought to do with others. Says he takes our sins and places our transgressions and places them in the deepest part of the ocean, and then he sets a buoy over it with a big sign that says no fishing. No fishing. If it's forgiven, it's done with. Doesn't necessarily mean that we forget, but we ought to remember that we've forgotten. In other words, it may come to remembrance, but it's never to be brought up again. It's been dealt with. Isn't that a wonderful truth regarding God? And we ought to display that one towards another. Forgiveness. And then in verse 11, we have the third element. It's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined again, here's that word, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. What is that inheritance that is being spoken of here? What is our inheritance? Well, according to this, it says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. You know what your inheritance is, dear saint? That you're going to be a part of the bride. You're going to be the bride of the lamb. You're going to be a member in the part of the body of Christ. And for all of eternity will be the trophies showing forth creation, the grace of God. That's our inheritance. There, the angelic beings and all other creatures will look on and they'll point out, look at that fellow right there, Schultz. He was a rascal. But there he is in the body of Christ part of the Lamb, uh, the bride of the Lamb of God. Isn't God wonderful? Isn't God gracious? That's our inheritance, that we will be the trophies that show forth His grace. Marvelous. Then, of course, we come to the work of the Holy Spirit beginning in verse 13, in him you also trusted after you heard 
the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You remember the, the old movies, you know, before they got to show life as it is, but you remember the, the good old movies where the language, you, you could uh, have a little baby sit there with you, uh, the old Three Musketeer, remember those kind of movies? And they would come out there and the king would have a, his signet ring and there would be a scroll and they'd put wax on that, uh, on that scroll to close it all up and the king would press in his little signet ring to show what? Ownership. And if you open it, if you open the scroll, it's at the cost of death to you. Ownership and security. The giving of the Holy Spirit to us. The Spirit of God living in the believer is the suggestion of ownership. It's the seal that says, I own you. I own you. And the security that we belong to him. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Never to be overpowered by Satan. Never to be taken out of that secure hand. The hand of the Lord Jesus Christ whose hand is in the hand of the Father, you told. Double security. And it says, no one can take me out of, uh, take you out of his hand. Not even you, dear saints. Some tend to think that they can fall in and out of uh, grace and salvation and so on and so forth. Not even you. You can't even take yourself out if you truly belong to him. Isn't that a reassuring? Isn't that wonderful? The seal, the Spirit of God, who is us, and who is, of course, the sign of ownership and security. And then we go on into verse 14, who is the guarantee or the earnest of our inheritance, who is the inheritance, is the uh, earnest, the guarantee of our inheritance. The suggestion here is perhaps... Uh, illustrated for us in the Old Testament. Uh, you remember the priest would go um, out into the field on the day of first fruits, and he would gather together a little sheath from a, from a corner of a field, and he would tie this sheath up, and then he would bring it as a wave offering, really, before the Lord. You know, and he would wave this sheath suggesting, of course, that there's a guarantee of a harvest to come. That there's a harvest to come. Well, this is similar to that. The Spirit of God is given as a guarantee that is, that he's the payment 
in like, but not the payment in full of the, what is going to be the full payment. He is the down payment that in fact we will receive the inheritance. And what is that inheritance again? Oh, it's not something material or, or anything of that. No, to think that there we are on display for all of eternity as the trophies of his wonderful grace. Marvelous. And so the Spirit of God has given us not only to show ownership and to give security, but also as a guarantee that God is going to fulfill that which he promised or that which he chose to do at the very, very beginning. The, whole, the Holy Spirit is going to accomplish the purpose of God all the way into eternity future. There's a third element here that's given us of the work of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee or the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now there are a variety of thoughts regarding this redemption of the purchased possession. Redemption of the purchased possession. What does it really mean? I think Roman 8, 8 and I think it's 23, something like that, uh, gives us the picture of that. You know, God's redeeming work is a complete work. He saves all of us. Not all of us numerically, but all of you personally and all of me. What are we? We're tripart beings, are we not? Body, soul, and spirit. Now we read over and over again the assurances that are absent from the body, present with the Lord. Well, what's present with the Lord? The spirit and the soul, right? We, we have a guarantee of that. But is that the full salvation, the full redemption accomplished in the cross by our Savior? Of course not. There's an element missing. And that element is these old bodies of ours. And whether we're translated and changed or buried and resurrected, it really doesn't matter. These bodies are going to be changed. And the Lord is going to accomplish by the Spirit of God His purposes that He set forth in eternity past that weren't thwarted in time because Christ took care of the failure or the sin of the desperate situation that man was in. And finally, finally, all of the believer is going to be brought into, uh, into the fullness of that redemption. The redemption of the purchased possession through resurrection or through a transformation as we're translated at his coming. What a thought. And there we will stand before him. What was the God's purpose? What was the, the purpose of God in choosing man? That he had an object that, in fact, he would have those that he's chosen to be like his son, Christ. 
to be the image of his Son for all of eternity. And so he purposed it, the Father purposed it, the Son accomplished the impossible in time. The Spirit of God will make sure that it comes to full fruition from eternity to eternity. Dear saints, we're a blessed people. We're a blessed people. If you're here this morning, I've been mostly talking to the believers, those that are already in Christ, but if you're here this morning, yet outside of Christ, you've not yet made that commitment of acknowledging Christ as your substitute, as the only manner and means of redemption, I would suggest with all of my heart that you do not leave this building now before doing so. I have a friend from many, many years back who, after I got saved, said, you know, Al, um, I see a few redeeming values, and you know, there's a few things that have changed in your life. Says, and, uh, and I am going to accept Christ, but I've just not quite yet done sinning. It was the last conversation I had with him. Two days later, he was on a train coming west, at a little spot just this side of Indio, he ran into a back of another train. The only casualty, the only fatality. Satan will rob you of your time. Now's the appointed day, right? Now is that given hour as well. That day is on the calendar. The hour is on that clock. You walk out of this door, you don't know what is facing you. Make sure that you've made things right with the Holy God, that your sins have been answered for by that simple, simple transaction, your sins for his saving grace. May it be so. Let's close. Our beloved Father, we do approach thee in the most precious and lovely name in all the universe. The name of the Lord Jesus. Oh, how we thank thee, Father, that your purposes in eternity past will come to fulfillment. And they'll come to fulfillment at great cost to thee and such enormous cost to our blessed Savior. We're amazed that you would take sinful men and women pay the ultimate price, the price beyond measure for their turning their back upon thee. And then, O oh gracious Father, 
bringing them into that place in Christ Jesus as trophies for all of eternity. We thank thee for that, Father. And we would pray too, O blessed Father, if there be a soul here this morning that has yet to make things right with thee, has yet to answer the issue or the question of their sin, that they might do so, Father. And rejoice with the rest of us, Father, in the knowledge that they have a hope that is sure, eternity that is certain, and that God can rejoice in both now and for all of eternity. We ask it in that lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.